Welcome to Art from the Outside, a podcast for anyone who wants an outside-in look at the art world. I'm Amitha Raman. And I'm Will Pally. And each episode, we're talking to the people who inspire us to help unravel the arts. Hello, Amitha, and hello, listeners. Welcome to season two of Art from the Outside. Woohoo! We made it. Oh, it's so exciting to reflect on this past year and really think about all of the amazing conversations that we've been lucky enough to have with so many people that we really admire in the art world. It's been a total blast. I feel very lucky to have such an incredible co-host, of course. And I also feel extremely lucky to have gotten to speak with some amazing folks. This season is going to be bigger and better, if that's possible, with some incredible conversations lined up with artists, curators, collectors, and gallerists from around the world. A couple highlights that I'm super looking forward to are conversations with the New York-based artist Chitra Ganesh, the incredible Barbara Caston and Kate Fowle, who's the director of MoMA PS1. And speaking of guests, actually, I'm super excited that we're kicking off season two with this guest. I actually just got back from New Orleans, where I saw his work as part of the Prospect 5 exhibition. And we actually talk about that installation during the episode. So it's going to be a really interesting conversation and the first of many, many more to come for season two of Art from the Outside. This episode, we are so excited to be joined by the innovative artist, Mary Ward. Originally from Jamaica, Ward works across a variety of media, including sculpture, installation, performance, photography, and video. He is best known for his use of found objects, such as baby strollers, cash registers, and shoelaces, to compose sculptural installations that provoke complex thoughts regarding racism, poverty, and consumer culture. Ward earned a Bachelor of Fine Arts from City University of New York Hunter College and a Master of Fine Arts from Brooklyn College. His work is included in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston, and Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville, Arkansas, just to name a few. In addition, Ward is the recipient of numerous honors, including the Fellowship Award from United States Artists, the Rome Prize from American Academy of Rome, and awards from the Pollock Krasner Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts, among many others. Neri, thank you so much for joining us. We are thrilled to have you here today. Oh, great to be here. Thank you. Nari, it's, it's quite fascinating when we do our research for these conversations you know, already we are deep admirers of the folks that we feel lucky enough to get to talk with. And it's this sort of unfolding journey of discovering accomplishment after accomplishment. And, you know, for me, I think, I know, Amitha, we each have these moments in your your career that we're so fascinated by. And when I was hearing about sort of the, you know, the work you'd done in Rome and the Rome Prize, and I just, was blown away, especially I'm in Europe at the moment. And so I had this sort of resonance. So all that to say after Amitha's sort of, you know, we 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 have to do this hard thing where it, there's so much good stuff to say and we almost have to editorialize. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, I love to hear it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we usually like to start off with a little bit of the personal. Um, can you share a bit about your background with us and if you can recall a specific experience or movement that inspired you to pursue the arts? Well, yeah, sure. As you said, I was born in uh, St. Andrew, Jamaica, an island of Jamaica. And um, it was really, you know, my mother's initiative to bring the family to America, this idea of, um, you know, more opportunities. In fact, my father didn't really want to come because uh, he had, he was the patriarch, right? He was in charge and Although my mom was always very strong-willed, even in Jamaica. And, and nevertheless, she decided that that's what we we're going to do. And so we came. I was actually the youngest of four boys. And then um, we basically moved to, it was some part of Brooklyn, New York. I want to say it was, you know, like Bushwick or something. like. But maybe not. It might have been Bensonhurst. One ah. of these, one of the hoods, <laughs> one of the then hoods <laughs> of Brooklyn. And that was, you know, so that was an amazing kind of leap. And that brought, you know, brought a lot to the table. I, I think that was a really important thing to come from the island in, in a lot of ways. It was, it was great because it sort of allowed, allowed me to have this other place of entry, in, in, you know, in terms of culture. But it, I think it was also, it also made us as a family stronger. Because, you know, it was like we were, uh, you know, that was our, our boat. <laughs> that was our support system, you know. And, and I think that was, you know, that, that helped sort of form a kind of, her, I want to say maybe an internal space for me. Wow. It resonated like that kind of internal uh, world initially. And then, uh, then we got a chance to move to, of all places, Parsippany, New Jersey. My mother had an mm. opportunity to work to take care of a, um, a gentleman there. And so it was it was a fortuitous move as well because we got out of a very difficult neighborhood. It was um, limited resources mm -hmm. and poor income neighborhood to a more kind of, I wouldn't say lower middle class, maybe the best word, kind of neighborhood. And primarily uh, a white neighborhood as well. So there were more resources in terms of the school system. And I remember, I think one of the key things that happened to me I think I was the only minority in the class, if I can remember. And I remember this one time in class in the grade school where, you know, just feeling isolated and feeling a little bit out of place, like any new student, perhaps, um, no matter where they're from. And uh, there was a Santa Claus above, image of Santa Claus uh, sort of above the blackboard. And being bored, you know, just being um, a lot of time on my hands, I started just drawing it, you know, trying to copy mm. it. And some of the kids came over. Uh, I remember one young kid, you know, one of my classmates coming over and saying, oh, the new kid's an artist, right? Like, so <laughs> I was like, oh, and that just stuck. You know, that just stuck. I, 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 that label, I think that was the label that I wanted. Uh, I felt like it was special the way he said it. Mm. I didn't know what art, you know, I didn't really... I wasn't around artists, so I didn't grow up around artists. I didn't, there wasn't an acclaimed label, an acclaim mm -hmm. to the notion of being an artist. But the way he said it, you know, and everybody else ran over to look at what I was drawing, kind of like that was something that I said, you know, oh, this is special. So from there, I wouldn't even say I was a drawer as much I was, um, as an artist, as much I was a copier, right? I mean, it was mm -hmm. really just, it was really just this task of, 
miming or mimicking what what renderings were in front of me. And I was, I was really very good at that. And I think that even carried over into acculturation. You're like just being able to fit in, just being able mm-hmm. to to um, emulate what was already expected. And I think you know that also carried over to how I sort of functioned as a as a child in reflecting on it. So that was the mm-hmm. moment where I was like, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> I could, uh, that's uh, th- th- that's a special label." Yeah, I, I'm curious. Go ahead. I, I was going to say I've I've heard that I I heard that beautiful story in a lecture I think you gave, and it was so interesting hearing the way you describe it now. And I was curious when they said, "Oh, this kid's the artist." Was that a sense of you feeling recognized, like, "Oh, I I've had this impulse, and now they've said that," or were you like, "Oh, I've never thought about that, but maybe if other people see this potential in me, then yeah. that's what I should do." Yeah, I, I think that's that was exactly it because I never really had any inc- early memories of even considering that this level of copying was uh, mm-hmm. special, you know. So it's really mm-hmm. that, like you said, that projection from other that this was something important and that this was regarded, you know, that I kind of mm-hmm. gravitated towards. Yeah, and it's That's interesting magical. that that anecdote, you know, you started out drawing, and I think many people that know your practice now may not be aware that you actually come from a drawing background. And I was fascinated, you know, as someone who's involved with Skohegan to learn that the combination of attending that residency program and also your move to Harlem in the 1990s are really two experiences that kind of help drive a shift in your practice. Wow, I mean, if you did your research, yeah. <laughs> so, so <laughs> you know, until... My entry into getting accepted to Skowhegan, you know, uh, program in in um, in Maine, I, I basically it's an amazing program. Yeah, it is like it the really premier is. residency, certainly in the U.S., if not globally. You yeah, said it, not me. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it it really is. Uh, I mean, you know, I uh, it's a longer story about that, but I, I did. Um, I had the opportunity to go there as a as a student as, as well as a faculty member. So it was kind of really like you, Amitha, I, I kind of sort of cheerleader for the program. But mm-hmm. when I got in, my major was drawing, in fact. And mm-hmm. it wasn't um it wasn't until really being there that I said, you know, I'm here in this special place. You know, it's a space uh that's an amazing amount of outdoor works, other space. So I, I decided to take on the challenge of doing some exterior sort of land works, some some large scale um, land wow. art, and that was that kind of led me, gave me the confidence to take the idea of using space in my work as a as a as a material really, and so that 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 kind of launched me to and empowered me to when I re- returned back to my neighborhood to start using um, more materials that were speaking to me, found objects. Mm. When you say land art, are you allowed to give us any, like any fond memories of those early works? Oh, yeah. When no, you were there they, on the Skowhegan campus? Oh, no, they were, <laughs> they were really intense projects because huh. I think I really wanted to, you know, there was also an element of competition there. And maybe that's changed a little bit, but I, the idea was, you know, when I got there, I was going to show them all, you know, how, how wow um, dedicated how ambitious how hard working i would of an artist i i could be and i think that you know there was a kind of 
group that I gravitated towards, maybe four or five of us that worked unendingly. Like that was our mm. label, the hardest workers in the camp, you know? <laughs> and so we, we would, you know, because it was really hot uh, at, in the summertime, we'd work from like 11 o'clock in the evening uh, at night till till the sunrise to like five or so, wow. six in the wow, morning. Wow, you're a nocturnal. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great because it was cooler. And there was less, mm -hmm. you know, there was less, I guess, distraction. And and for what I was doing, which is I was one particular project was this praise one. I did these these installations, um, artworks called praise, and mm. they were sort of adjacent to each other. But the one piece, the first praise piece, it was basically me digging this hole that was around eight, six feet down, right, six feet by maybe mm. four or five feet in diameter. And that was something that I just, you know, just um, wanted to create a vessel that would be a vessel for my body, really. And then wow. in, in a way, I had this great material that I came across, which was this leather strapping from an old uh, mill machine from some, you know, cast off from like some 18th century technology <laughs> or 19th century technology. I had this... Um, great, um, spoke to me about doing something with it. So I started weaving it. And that mm. kind of brought me into this space of, of weaving and merging uh, sort of disparate objects together. So basically, it was a basket mm. that I made uh, a below ground. And at the wow. bottom of the basket was this mound that was also kind of woven with, um, I remember it was like, it was razor wire or something like that. Barbed Oof. wire. Yeah. Oh, so okay. it was this, it was this combination of which I sort of carried in my work is this combination of of care and nurturing and abjection right like something that kind of mm. pushes you back and one of the things i think that we both admire about you so much is your works are so powerful and evocative and you also, I think, incredibly generous in terms of how mm. you present them to the public how you speak about them that you know, in so many interviews, you're really resistant to giving your works a very fixed meaning that you leave them open to interpretation. And I really admire that. Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm always reluctant to share too much, though, because I feel like it's also taking away that license for somebody to say, this is what I think it is. And, mm -hmm. and they're mm. perfectly right. And, and it's a really delicate and important point, though, because I, you know, it is this is what it made. It was important for me to make the work, but I don't really want that to be the work. Like it, it, mm. it's about making the work strong, visually and impactful. And al almost, I think of it as like a kind of emotional magnet for people to stick ideas and experiences to. Mm. Wow. And so that's, that's, that's what I'm hoping. But, you know, the more I talk about it, the, the more I demagnetize it, I feel like sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to add to that, I mean, I, one of the things that I love most about your works is um, how many layers you intentionally build in to allow people to, you know, find their own interpretation. And also the fact that you really speak to both the art world and also just the everyday person with your references. I'm thinking of works like Can Smiles, which references one of my favorite artworks, the Piero Manzoni's artist shit, or the Till series that references Mark Rothko. Why is it important to you to have a dialogue with both the art world and the everyday person? Yeah, I think, you know, just getting back to the idea of being a social realist in a way, it's just 
making sure that there's room for somebody's experience and that that thing they know, they can start with the thing they know and it's it takes them on a journey that can bring them somewhere else. And I think that mm. that's what, it, you know, the same way the journey was taken by me, I'm hoping that a similar adjacent kind of uh, journey can happen for their, uh, within their, their experience with the work. That's that's important. You know, I, I also, it's harder. There's a kind of, I, I guess, there's a kind of indoctrination that happens that's necessary maybe yeah, when, when somebody comes across abstraction, right? But it's not, mm. sometimes it's difficult for the everyday person to embrace abstraction because it becomes somebody else's endorsement of an idea. So I I think you know for me the especially you know for marginalized individuals um, we are not part of that power structure that's telling you what's regarded. It's important to start with a thing that they know, and then uh, sort of try to build something around that that can um, be transformative for them. Very early on in your career, have had the opportunity to exhibit your work at the Venice Biennale. Documenta and the Whitney Biennial twice, among other important group exhibitions. Can you speak to how the rise of the Biennial circuit uh, contributed to your growth as an artist? Yeah, definitely. You know, I there I studied under some amazing artists, uh, artists of color and women artists, and they never had a lot of opportunities, right? Because when I came up, you know, I, I kind of always say that I I'm one of the artists is sort of like you know the hinge the hinge era because it wasn't, you know, prior to my generation, a lot of artists of color were limited to the one black artist, the one, you know, like mm. the, there was always that one person that the, the so-called mainstream would let in, you know, whether, whether it was Jacob Lawrence or Romeo Bearden. Um, so that was, they were the ones, right? The chosen ones. Mm-hmm. Um, the magical Negroes, right? And so I think by the time I I came along, you know, that started to break. And what allowed it to break wasn't that the galleries became more uh, amicable and, uh, you know, sort of enlightened, but it was that opportunity broadened, right? We, the Mm -hmm. biennial circuit allowed for more opportunities for these uh, individuals to get a platform. Right. They didn't have to wait for the gallery. They didn't have to wait for the alternative spaces. They were, you know, it was like this traveling circus that you were part of and you all kind of knew each other. And, you know, it, it, no, it really was. It really was. And, and then you got access to all this new culture and these new collectors. Mm-hmm. And so things started to suddenly filter out and, and become really exciting in that way. And I think the collectors sort of woke up to it and, and slowly, much, much slower, the galleries sort of woke up to that possibility. I was going to ask about collectors, actually, because uh, you're, you know, not very many artists reference collectors. And, you know, you mentioned the collector in Greece who was very supportive of your work. And it sounds like there are some really amazing people that you've worked with who have championed your practice over several decades. That sounds incredible. Well, I don't know. I, I have to rein that in. Um, there are... There were, <laughs> okay. there, were, there were really ambitious collect. There was a moment in this era of um, the 90s of globalization, 
right? This big word mm-hmm. that that was always that that promised so much equity and equality, which is uh, didn't really pan out. It just it became more about rich getting richer. But mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. idea was that you know the markets would open up and more people would be involved, and 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 mm-hmm. uh, a kind of um, balancing out would happen. Um, so that was, I think that, you know, that never really came to fruition. You know, I never really started, you know, making any money um, mm. till probably 10 years into my career. Um, wow. Maybe even more. Uh, I taught all the time. That was, the good thing is I never had to make a living off of my art, you know, because I taught. Mm-hmm. You know, I, as soon as I got out of grad school, I started teaching. So uh, the expectation... You, just to interject, you still do teach at Hunter. Yes, yes. And in the I MFA enjoy program. I, I, you know, there was a moment, a brief moment, maybe three years of it where I was done. I was like, I can't do any, this anymore. It's taken away because I was doing <laughs> so much in terms of exhibitions that I felt like it was pulling me away from the studio. And then, uh, you know, the pandemic kind of came along and made me really appreciate what I get from teaching, the energy, the uh, the sort of generative space of talking about work and ideas with these younger individuals, um, sort of refreshed my excitement mm-hmm. uh, to be in that uh, academia again, you know? And it also kind of, it, it's another space of distance too, right? You know, all this theory reading, all this looking at somebody's work, it pulls you out of your own navel steering so that you can kind of understand a little bit of other uh, approaches. And then it's harder to to recenter. But when you do recenter into your own practice, I feel like you've grown a lot. I've grown a lot every time that I um, needed to negotiate coming back in, especially if you, you see uh, you have a powerful semester of working with um, these, these students. So it's become a really great space uh, for me and one that I used to begrudgingly sort of resent, and now I, <laughs> I'm, I'm totally uh, back on track with uh, loving academia. Speaking of some of the formal choices that you make in your process, many of your works are very large scale and use repetition. Um, so this notion of labor often comes up when discussing your work. Why is labor important, and where do you think your sense of labor comes from? And maybe as a follow-up question, if you could share that anecdote about David Hammonds, your friend. I, I loved reading about <laughs> what he oh, said about... Oh, wow. You really did your... Re- wow, you did your research. So, so... I mean, that's good. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm also a huge fan, as you can see. <laughs> one, one day, I was sitting out in front of the Studio Museum in Harlem. Actually, no, I wasn't sitting. I was walking by the Studio Museum in Harlem. And David used to live on 125th Street. And so he was always around. And I saw him and he... And we were friendly because I had met him prior to that. And he knew of my work and he, he, he was started to really jar me, sort of, sort of, sort of joking, <laughs> sort of, you know, joking kind of um, just to tease, which I think is, I, I, was a, I saw it as a, a term of endearment more than anything else. Uh, and I think he meant it as that. But who knows, <laughs> David? But he was just, he was saying, you know, Nary, you know, that he was talking about, you know, so called, art world loves to see you sweat. You know, they love to see you sweat, mm-hmm. man. You know, because he's a Duchampian, right? So he was, he kept, he kept yeah. saying, you know, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I work hard, David. You know, you know, it, you know he just not trying, trying to be, a, you know, not trying to be dismissive of what he's saying. 
And then he goes, yeah, you're just like a slave out there. They love to see you in the fields. You know, like he was saying this Whoa. as this kind of, so, you know, I knew he was trying to get me, you know, get my goat. And I, <laughs> and I didn't want to show him that he got my goat. So I, I kind of laughed it off. And, and it's sort of, you know, in a way it, it stuck with me though. You know, I kind of realized that he pulled on a cord that I didn't really acknowledge, right? The labor and who is it for and why are they, you know, what, what does that value? How, how do you add value to that labor or how is value added to that labor? And the fact that he could stick a, a bubble gum under a toy chair and add value to something was, <laughs> was, uh, you know, power, right? Cause it comes down mm-hmm. to power and, 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 uh, and labor. So anyway, I, I decided to make a work called sweat sweater mm-hmm. where, um, mm. Where it's just me sweating. So there's a real close of a big image of my head sweating. And the wonderful irony of that is that the sweating is actually me in a sauna, right? So it was really me resting. Oh, how then, funny. Like in a spa. Yeah, in a spa. So, so, but, and it was kind of, it was, and making that work is almost, almost a cathartic to put it under control what he tried to let loose in my brain in a way. Um, so that was kind of, uh, important in that respect as well. I want to ask two questions. One was going to be quite simple. Um, I mean, not simple, but like straightforward in that I was going to ask you, how do you pick the titles for your work? And then one was actually going to be maybe a little, mm, I don't know, potentially too sensitive or too political. But I was really curious to ask very directly based on the anecdote you you mentioned with, with David, um, the question I wrote down was, in your mind, how are the expectations of artists of color different from white artists? So two questions in a very different one. How do you pick your titles? And then two, a very blunt question that might, you know, obviously, I'd, if you don't feel comfortable answering, we can skip it. But those were the two things that popped out of that conversation. That's anecdote, excuse me. Yeah, no. So I, I kind of feel like one of my biggest sort of inspiration for titles and even my own work is is poetry right and the idea wow. that you take um you take the listener on a, a a kind of voyage but you're not you're creating a space for them you're not necessarily telling them where to be right so the the i feel like that's what poetry the power of poetry and and wordplay in some sense not all poems um not all poetry are, are, are interested in that, but the idea of how you can take your viewer somewhere and leave them in a space of adjacency, maybe that's the thing, where they're, mm. it's not your, it's not, you're not directing them, but you're holding an area for them to be in. Oh, interesting. I remember like the last, sort of the last uh, stages of of grad school, I started to incorporate sort of Jamaican titles into my paintings. I, mean, I, I, I shouldn't uh-huh. say paintings, they were drawings, they were using oil sticks. And the, the idea was to sort of um, slow down the viewer. I didn't care that they didn't, it wasn't important that they knew what it meant, but that the words, the spelling kind of phonetically had a presence or uh, interconnected with the the drawing. So it was a real... Um, that that started me on trying to figure out how to bring language into into the work, and and then it came back again with the shoelace pieces. Mm-hmm. 
But the thing about those, you know, it, it's never, it, it's never direct, right? It's, it's there, there's, there are moments where whatever is being expressed is quite ambiguous and there are moments where it's quite um, legible. And I think that was really the criteria for trying to think about what um, what words gets used is that it had this kind of double, it occupies a kind of double space of maybe somewhere in between, between that legibility and that, and that, that, that kind of abstraction, something else can happen. And the, mm-hmm. and the other part about being an artist color, a black artist, I think that's a different, you know, I, it gets back to who you make the work for. So I never really, it, it doesn't really hit me as being a difficult task. I remember, you know, the Amazing Grace piece, which was one of my first big installations, the, the baby stroller piece. It was definitely made for the neighborhood. I was collecting these baby strollers wow. that I collect from the neighborhood. And I wanted to bring people from the neighborhood in to see these objects that were about the present, but also about the future, right? The baby stroller is that moment where the child is pushed into the, uh, taken from the body of the, the mother or father and pushed into the, the world. And so, and, and then creating this, this dialogue of, of bondage, but also a dialogue of witness. Um, mm. and, and somewhere in between the dialogue of bondage and witness was uh, this other moment, which is the viewer's r- route around the piece or through the piece. So that was, you know, it's always this tension and release and putting the viewer in between those two declaratively, declarative moments. So and it get, so getting back to what I'm saying is, so it's never <laughs> been about race. You know, the, there is this really great term that Okwe Enzor uh, came up with. I, I think he came up with it, but, I, but maybe I'm wrong, but I, I heard it a lot when within the... Um, the show at you know the new museum, and it was called um, the racial sublime, mm. and and so this this idea is that this notion of race, as fictional as it is, is not not to see it as a box uh, or as a cage to hold your ideas down, but to see it as a kind of infinite possibilities. And I think that wow. was really that was really profound to think of it as this strange um, you know folding in possible option within that expectation you know you you brought up Akui and which made me think of you know the mind-blowing installation of yours at the exhibition of his or posthumous exhibition at the new museum obviously you had a retrospective um or mid-career retrospective, or mid, I'm not sure, a mid-career exhibition. Mid-career survey, um, yeah. Yes, thank you, <laughs> at the New Museum. And I like to think of it as a young artist project, but go ahead, yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nari, that's pretty good. If a young artist project counts as a solo show at the New Museum, I cannot wait for your mid-career and late-career right. stuff, that's if this I'm is where you're at it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was actually going to be my question. My nerdy question was going to be, um, do you have like a dream venue or dream uh, museum or space? Milestone, yeah. Gosh, it's a really good question. I think one of, and it's twofold, right? You know, I, I so I've done these shows once. I, I've only done one show in Jamaica, right? At the National oh. Gallery. 
And it's been a disaster every single time. Like, I, not <laughs> really? disaster to get the work returned, disaster to get the work, you know, presented. I mean, it, because it's oh it's difficult. It's a difficult environment there, and there are not a, a lot of uh, resources for for that institution. But I kind mm-hmm. of feel like what what I would love, and they've been in this one building, which is really um, you know claustrophobic for them for maybe thirty of no sixty years or something. So they, they they need a new building. They need to have um, you know that they, a sort of expanded idea of what that contemporary art can be for them, because they have an amazing collection. And I think that that idea of building that um, a building there in Jamaica for you know for education, but for for display, and then having a show, an exhibition there for me would be like a dream. That would be amazing. And the reason is, is that I always felt like there's so much incredible talent on the island, you know, uh, the mm-hmm. same way, you know, I got an opportunity to come to the U.S. and sort of mine my experiences and in, in, in go into the art world. I feel like that there, is, there are so many young people with profound uh, talent there that that would be exceptional to see uh, what they, they could bring to the dialogue, you know. So I... I that's one of the things that I'm trying to figure out how to to do in some respect. So, you know, get a building built in Jamaica <laughs> and then have an exhibition That's there amazing. at some point. That's not a disaster. <laughs> yeah. Jamaican Minister of Culture, um, if you're listening, now is like, you, you have an invitation from Nari. That would be mind-blowing if, when, not let's not say if, when it happens. It's a big, you know, this is the big drama for any so-called third world country, though, right? The levels of support are really limited because the resources are limited. And I think that, um, and and there is, and there is, um, there isn't the same tax system as here, but there isn't the same level of civil, civic responsibility. Folks who do well, they, they're generally trying to keep those funds for themselves and their family. And so I think, I think that's, it's, it's a, it's a cultural thing as well. So I, I, it's such a difficult and complicated challenge, you know, um, you know, a lot of times all it takes is one person with an amazing vision with, and a lot of money. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, did you spend, <laughs> because I know um, it's actually, I was reading a story about when you were in Rome and one of your dealers introduced you to a collector as a Jamaican artist and how oh. that was, you know, kind of struck you because you're like, I've lived in New York for 20 something years. Um, how am I being labeled as a Jamaican artist? So I was curious, mm. like how you kind of navigate those two identities or. It's tough. And, and, and the Jamaican, yeah. Jamaicans don't consider me a Jamaican artist, right? So, which, <laughs> which they shouldn't. Yeah. They, they, um, there's that term that, a lot of us use called uh, Jamaicans, right? Like, so we're really oh. Jamaicans, oh, <laughs> and and it's a kind of strange space of being a little bit of both, but not, um, but de- definitely more connected to to the U.S. Just because you know, maybe more economically connected to the U.S. But I, I think I I came up when I was quite young, twelve, and I don't know the island as well as I probably should. But that's kind of one of my, you know, the the bucket list is to sort of go back and spend uh, quality time there. Because every time I go with the family, um, primarily it's on vacation. But when I go, I I always feel like it's generative. There's something really special Mm. about 
the smell, the 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 heat, the wind, the environment, the, the nature, mm. the urban spaces that I that I, that I, I really respond to and come back uh, sort of reinvigorated. But at the same time, I I don't want it to be only about Jamaica. You know, it's like so. How do you mm-hmm. yeah, so the challenge is you know how do you get something that specific and then create meaning that can be for somebody who isn't from that experience, right? Or can't, you know, can't be, or may not have the same level of ch- uh, chest bumping around the, the subject. So it's a, it's, it's a good challenge though. I, I was just going to say very briefly, I feel like the conversation about your relationship with Jamaica and Jamaican identity could be an entire podcast series in and yeah. of itself. <laughs> but there was one anecdote um, you gave that really stuck out for me. You mentioned running and you were explaining, I believe that one of your dealers introduced you to an older woman and um, a collector and the dealer introduced you as Jamaican and it was referring to maybe, oh no, it was, it prompted a set of photographs, your, your, your series. And she said, oh, but you're not very smiley. Or something right. like that. You yeah, don't seem very yeah, happy. My work, my work isn't very happy. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah, she expected, you know, she'd been to Jamaica on vacation and made all of these generalizations that Jamaicans are always happy, are always happy. I just yeah. found that fascinating. Yeah. And, and in fact, you Lamentable. Know, I, yeah, I really wanted, the idea was, again, like David's um, statement, it sort of stayed with me. And I wanted to figure out how to build a question around it, right? Or, or how to how to take that question or that moment of sort of misrepresentation and even complicate it to become something else. And so I really wanted to take on this character. My uncle, who was a Mentos was a Mentos singer, uh, sort of take on his character and become this kind of happy Jamaican and see in Rome, right? In Italy, mm-hmm. actually, I was in Italy, and I really wanted it to to um kind of bring the happy Jamaican into these Italian vignettes. And it, it didn't work. Like every time I'd smile mm-hmm. and laugh and it just never worked. And but but when I stared blankly at the camera and it just held a different kind of power that made this person so um so beautifully displaced and real that uh I was like that's the only way it could function, you know. So so he was there holding everybody's houseplants because it's really about this idea of vulnerability, right? Is vulnerability and, but still thriving, right? Because the plants were still very much alive. Well, my question was going to be, Nari, um, if there are, if you'll indulge us with any sources of inspiration for you. Yeah, the, the that generation of artists, there's a bunch of artists that I got a chance to um, study study, not really, you know, they weren't really in the books, you know, they're the Howard Dean, the Pendels, the Betty Saar, <gasps> like all of these artists uh, that are now getting Jack Whitten, yes. that are that are yeah. getting all this um, amazing attention that they're educators. That's how they made their living to survive, you know, mm-hmm. Mel Edwards, all of these guys. And uh, Al mm-hmm. Loving is another amazing artist that I got a chance Lee to. Lee Bontaku, I heard Lee, you studied yeah, with. Yeah, Lee was great. What? He is a great artist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Brooklyn College. I, she d- was there for mine. Longest. Is blown. Sorry, you you <laughs> studied with Lee Bontaku? Oh yeah. Matter of fact, she wrote my letter. I have this letter 
that you you like yeah. it was a letter to get into Scout Egan. She was one of my recommenders. Oh, right? wow. I, I dug oh, up her letter. Yeah, it was pretty cool. See, that is something I did not come across in my research. I knew that she was a supportive <laughs> faculty member towards you, but I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, she's yeah. Wow. Yeah, she's a really amazing artist too. Really special. But she's she she's um you know, inspirationally reclusive, right? Like she's she's in mm-hmm. she does she's just doing her thing, which is even when when the 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 um the spotlight of the art world was on her, she shied away from it. She didn't really need it. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of inspiring too. Because so many young artists think that that's the expectation, mm-hmm. right? To to run to the light of sort of a the adoration of the art world. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's a fiction, to, you know, to just do your work and that should be enough. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that's why so many of us find David Hammond so inspiring because he's like so badass where he's like, I don't care about the market. I don't care about, you know, that whole... I just do my own thing and everyone responds to it, which makes it even more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, brilliant. Brilliant that way. And he, and nobody, nobody can do that. You know what I mean? Like you, you can't, there's not like you can sit down with a student and say, Oh, look at this. This is what you should be doing. You know, you realize, and I think that's because he's so in a way different than a lot of artists, you realize that it's, everybody has to find their own journey and, and their journey is the one that's right for them. When you're teaching, what are some of the, and maybe this is like a really cheesy question, but what are some of like the top tips or pieces of guidance that you always find students really resonate? And equally, have you ever learned anything from your students? I think I learn more from them than they learn from me. You know, (laughs) I definitely feel that. Uh, It's different though. Well, it's such a different... um, the art world is so very different than when I was coming up, right? Because of social mm-hmm. media, because of uh, the ability to just make your own catalog, project yourself in the world in a, in, in a way that relatively new, very new. You know, so I, I think that I just tell them to really take it seriously. I mean, that's, it's mm-hmm. like, this is everything they do is mm-hmm. important, you know, and really... Um, really be aware of how important the little things are. If you, if they're going to go into the art world and it's it's their long-term endeavor, then everything matters, you know, and and mm. the, the not not to not to trivialize um things. I think is really important. And then also find a community, you know, not just yes. the internet community, but find a a community that it can foster, nurture, support and inspire. You know, I think that's really that's why you go to art school. You don't go to art school mm-hmm. to, you know, you get your art school to find like-minded individuals and contrarians mm-hmm. to um, to grow to grow around, you know. And I think that's important that idea of growing, and that's that's the key thing, you know. That's the, always the challenge, though. It's painful to grow because it's it, you know it's meant to be, and I think that um, normalizing that kind of anxiety is really part of what I try to do for them. You know, even me, right? You know, and I have a show coming up. It's like pulling teeth. It's traumatic because you know you have to go into the unknown. You know you have to deal with your demons. You know you have to deal with your doubts. And whether you're going to fail is always lurking in the shadows, right? And then, Mm. you know, what does ambition mean with all of that in um, conversation? So I think that's 
that, but then that's normalized to say, okay, I'm going for it. Let's just, um, let's face all of these things and, and finding strength in that. Well, I was going to say, Nari, uh, I heard through the grapevine that your crits are, you are a professor or a teacher of few words, but they are always like incredibly insightful. I heard that from the grapevine. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> well, you know, so. you know what I do? Well, let me give you the secret. I just listen to what they say and condense it down to my own words. <laughs> I take notes on what they're all saying and say, okay, that's, yeah, okay. Now, basically, I use their words as found objects and reinvent the ideas for what what um I want to say about that you know the work that they're presenting and so that's that's kind of it but it's fun I like I really enjoy the teaching process because it really does force one to think about the the questions that um that these young younger folks are dealing with and what that might even mean for my approach keeps me on my piece and cues. Nari, I have like infinite questions and I don't want to like <laughs> use up any more of your time. But I was then thinking... But oh he will. So, <laughs> and I will. I'm such a talker. I'm not a talker. I love asking questions. But I was going to say, I think that... So I'm 33. I'll be turning 34 next month. And I am continuously struck by people who are younger than me in terms of the way they think, their politics, their vision for what the world can be. And I think it must be like, even for me, spending time with young people, I always find I'm learning and I always feel very inspired. And I wonder if you work with, you know, young, really young MFA students you just have these moments where you're like, wow, they have a totally different vision of, of what the world can be. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no. And and the last, you know, the this whole Black Lives Matter movement and social justice period that we're, we're in and negotiating, they're on it. I mean, they're really, yeah. you know, they're really about how to, you know, how to, to take that into the studio and how to take that into their practice. Um, decolonizing the, you know, the MFA, the, you know, all of these kind of um, ideas Good. that are like so, so um, necessary. It's really, for me, it's really inspiring, you know, and, and the ideas, that's the, but that's the thing, you know, these are ideas and we're all sitting there sort of marinating around them. And the, the challenge is always putting those ideas to action. And I think, um, that's where that's where I I wonder how you know how that will manifest, but I think it has to start with the ideas. So we'll see what what happens. Well, I think that's the trickiest part, and the part that you do so well. It's like even if you don't know how to interpret this object, you're just drawn to it because it's a beautiful object on the surface, and then you start to understand the title and the layers of the meaning. And it's like I feel like that's the kind of art that I'm really drawn to, and I feel like that's always like the the magic. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, you know, it, it keeps me critical of even my own. I guess the whole notion of critiques, the, the discourse of critiques, is is not being comfortable with the successes and always wanting to to want more from them. And I think I'm also very cognizant of the anesthetizing that that can mm. produce, right? Like, because then there's a kind of, oh yeah, that work is doing th- what. Um, the, what my anxiety is about. And then you can kind of, uh, it becomes a rack for that anxiety. And then 
it stops you from using that anxiety in other means that might be more activist engaged. So what I'm what I've been really thinking about, and I think a lot of artists are thinking about, is how to turn the economics of the work into into this action, like the piece mm-hmm. behind you, the till piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, that was part of this idea is that the a percentage of the sale of that work goes towards uh, a social justice organization. And right? I read originally you wanted it to be a hundred percent of the proceeds. Yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the gallery was like, wait a second, we got to rethink this. <laughs> you would think that they were homeless. It was kind of funny, you know. They're like, no, 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 our, our lights will go off, you know. But I get it, you know. It's a business, and and so. In all of this, it's about That's finding amazing. that space of compromise, right? And that I, I kind of always make this analogy. It's like you know, I I've never been the artist, the, the mad, crazy uh, artist outside of the house screaming to get in. You know, mm-hmm. I'd rather be the one inside, you know, fucking up the toilets. You know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's like amazing. messing with messing with it from the inside. <laughs> So uh, that, that's that's my um, agenda. But you, you need both. But you need both. You, bo- you need both of those to to work to make things really, um, you know, advance. Yeah, amen to that. I just have this image now of like overflowing toilets, Nary. <laughs> when the collectors that's let me into their house, the, where's the t- <laughs> they're gonna be watching me. <laughs> I mean, so don't worry. Oh I won't. I won't do that to your toilet. Don't worry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> It would be worth it if you did that to yeah, my toilet. True. I would like put a, I put a, um, you know what? I would put a cordon around it, and I'd be like, "This is actually an installation piece." And I'm sorry, this is a performance. You can't. Yeah, yes. this is transgressive. Well, I I'm curious, Nari, if you will indulge us on the subject of happy and laughing. We a somewhat frivolous part of every conversation is we do what we call an art kiki. Will you indulge us? One, do you know what a kiki is? I don't know what a kiki is, though. What is that? Oh. A, <laughs> well, so, isn't as, that like a character, a cartoon character or something? I'm not familiar with that, but as, as <laughs> yeah. a queer person, as a gay man, this is my language. A kiki is like a gossip. And, oh, okay. You know, we... we we use it basically to basically have a gossip or have a lighthearted conversation about if there's anything that you've been loving or if there's a surprising anecdote that you wanted to share that you haven't shared recently. Is that fair, Amitha? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. No, no. I There was one thing that just kind of... Funny, it's, I, I, it came to me thinking about this, came to me just... Uh, a couple of hours ago in, in my neighborhood and in Harlem, you know, I been living in this one place, which actually is the place that I showed the Amazing Grace piece, an old firehouse. I was actually curious. You're still at the firehouse. Yeah. Yeah. The okay. same firehouse. And when I moved here, there was only the next door to me, the other side where the firemen live had been turned into a church called the Church of the Meek. Mm. So for the longest time when I was living here, uh, the guys in the neighborhood thought that I was a reverend. They thought, they thought this is the rectory for the church. So they all <laughs> thought that, that I was a reverend. And I, I, you know, and I knew that this was the case for, this is going on in maybe 15 years. 
And yeah. <laughs> um, there, I mean, the reason I it, it I remembered is this this one. I just now I ran into a guy and and he was asking me. He called me Reverend, and I said, "Oh, I forgot that. That's the story that you guys." <laughs> but I'm not a reverend. I, but I I never told them. I told him today that I'm not a mm-hmm. reverend. That I you know I just live yeah. next to the, the, the church and that I'm an artist and and I teach and I'm, so I just you know trying to be neighborly. But back then, I never really told them that I was not a reverend because I figured I'd be safe if I just left that <laughs> fiction out there. <laughs> it was a, it was a safer fiction to to maintain. Um, so back in the day when this is a rough neighborhood, you know, I I sort of thrived on the notion of being called a reverend to keep me safe. Well, it's interesting to think about because spirituality and sacred places, you know, are, are themes within your work. So. Oh yeah, no, maybe they're not I, so far off. <laughs> no, no, I I didn't have any. You know, if if that's yeah. why I didn't shoot it down so quickly. I I kind of actually liked the notion of being, um, sort of pushed into that space. Well, Reverend Ward, um, <laughs> we also like to end the conversation on an, an optimistic note, or maybe I don't know. Uh, what are you looking forward to in the next six months? So I'm doing um couple of different things. I'm, I'm doing an exhibition that I'm working on now for Prospect 5, uh, oh. sort of revisiting the Prospect family because I was um, one of the artists in Prospect 1. And mm-hmm. so part of this, wow. ex- yeah, it's pretty amazing. So the idea within the, the, um, the curator's sort of idea around the show is sort of this idea of revisiting history. And so it made sense for Naomi Keith and, and Diana Nawi to invite some of the artists in the first prospect into this one. And so I was fortunate to be chosen to be uh, one of those artists. And so I'm doing a sound piece that is wow. going to be, yeah, no, it's, it's my real first adventure into primarily sound. Like normally I've, the sound has been a kind of, um, chaperone to an installation, for lack of mm-hmm. a better word, uh, and I think this one is more where the object is the chaperone to the sound, um, and it's important. It was an important piece to do because it actually takes a, the sound that I were I used on Prospect One, which is the only remnant of that um, piece, mm. and re remakes it. And just for listeners, by the way, I'm realizing we should specify Prospect is an exhibition in New Orleans um, and it will be happening this October 2021. Exactly. Yeah. Like you said, well, it's it's important. And and for me, it's even more important in regard to uh, reflecting, like Prospect One was actually a kind of reflection of what happened with Katrina. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I think artists do this well. Like we're we're really um, the salvation of artists, and the, and the need for them is to sort of reassess the moment, especially after a traumatic space. Um, so I think, you know, th- within this COVID era, the the idea of this prospect now, sort of hopefully reflecting on what's happening and what's what happened, uh, maybe hopefully <laughs> what's happened more in the past. <laughs> Will will really be meaningful and, and necessary, you know. So I'm doing that, and I'm excited about that. And then I'm also just you know gearing up for a, a solo exhibition at my gallery here in New York, at Lehman Maupin in uh, in um, April. So that's going to be exciting to take that on in their space. Well, thank you. This was such a fun conversation. We really appreciate you. And that was fun, though. It's a good conversation, guys. Thank you. 
My pleasure. And we're so excited for your show coming up at Lehman Maupin, and hopefully we can all travel to come see it at Prospect. Thanks for listening to this episode of Art from the Outside. As a friendly reminder, please subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Art from the Outside Podcast. Our sound engineering is by Hanger Studios, photography by Enrique Vega, and original music by Lola's Ghost. Stay well, be safe, and hope you'll join us for the next episode.